0: Tech Worldwide. It's the High Tech Podcast in plain English, with an hour's worth of news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the commercials, the station breaks, the sports, and most of the jingles. Podcast number 709 for the 4th of September, 2020. This week, Serif's Affinity division has released updated versions of Affinity Photo, Affinity Designer, and Affinity Publisher. Despite the low prices of these applications, they pack surprisingly robust feature sets. In short circuits, scammers stay up-to-date on news, and COVID-19 has been profitable for them. It's so profitable that Medicare and the Centers for Disease Control have launched a campaign to explain how contact tracing works, and just as important, how to spot a fake. Has Microsoft set your default browser to Edge, or has something else changed your preferred search engine? If so, it's an easy fix, and I'll explain how for the three major browsers. In spare parts, which you find only on the website, Adobe's free Photoshop camera app for Android and iOS devices keeps getting better with the addition of free lenses. Those lenses modify images taken with the app. Acronis True Image 2021 doubles down on security measures with tools to scan for viruses, watch for malware, and use artificial intelligence to identify attacks before they can do damage. And 20 years ago, a 19-inch monitor seemed gigantic, but flat panel monitors were prohibitively expensive, and those big cathode ray tube screens left little space on the desk. Adobe has been the king of computer-based photography, design, and publishing for decades. That's unlikely to change. Even so, three applications from Serif's Affinity division are worth looking at. The company produced three similar programs that had free versions DrawPlus X8, PhotoPlus X8, and PagePlus X9. They're still available without cost from Serif's website. There's a link on the TunkBiter Worldwide website. These applications are no longer being developed and no support is available, but they were very good starting points for Affinity Photo, Affinity Designer, and Affinity Publisher. The latest releases, all version 1.8, will be more than sufficient for some users who don't need Adobe's video, audio, and website design tools, or who don't like Adobe's service as a software model, the rental plan. Change is challenging for some, and the switch from paying a large fee every 18 to 24 months instead of paying a small monthly fee has annoyed some users. Affinity's three applications for Windows and Mac OS computers each cost just $50. Photo and Designer have iPad versions that cost $20 each. Updates have been provided without charge so far, presumably that will continue, until the company has a version 2.0 release. So, if you're looking only at the bottom line, the three affinity applications cost $150 total, versus $600 per year for Adobe's larger collection of apps, or $120 per year for the Adobe Photography Plan. Looking at just the bottom line is a horrible way to make a buying decision, though. So let's look at the features that are new in version 1.8 of Affinity's applications to see what they add. The Photo application will probably have more users than the other two, perhaps the other two combined, so let's start there. The newly released version of Affinity Photo has better support for plugins. Nearly all plugins are provided as files with the extension 8BF. It's a standard developed by Adobe and released publicly. And that means that any application that accepts 8BF files can probably use plugins designed for Photoshop. Any plugins that are added to Affinity's plugins folder will be detected and enabled automatically. Users who have plugin packages that have been installed elsewhere simply need to add that location so that it appears in the program's search locations. Plugins are found in the Develop module under Filters. Before selling the plugins to DXO, Google provided a free version of the NIC plugins. The free plugins are still available, but somewhat dated. You can download them, and they do install in the Affinity program. One potential issue with Affinity Photo, whether plugins are used or not, is the huge file size of raw images that are saved in Affinity Photo format after being edited. A digital negative file that's about 25 megabytes, when edited in, for example, on One's photo editor, gains only a 54 kilobit sidecar file. When it's round-tripped from Lightroom to Photoshop, the resulting TIFF is nearly 157 megabytes, but Affinity Photo's file grows to 270 megabytes, nearly 11 times the size of the raw file and that can be painful if disk space is limited. Processing raw files has been substantially improved to support 32-bit output. That means more detail will be retained in highlights and shadows. Nearly all photo editing applications have a lens correction option that attempts to correct lens distortion. All lenses do have some amount of distortion. This can be a significant problem with zoom lenses. Applications typically recognize the type of lens used, the manufacturer and model, and then apply corrections that deal with known issues. Some photographers use lenses that have no electronic connection to the camera, that means the application has no idea what lens was used. Affinity Photo allows the user to apply any known lens correction to any image. And there's also a full manual mode and that mode allows the user to adjust barrel and pin cushion distortion, modify vertical and horizontal tilt, change rotation and scaling, and enable or disable chromatic aberration reduction, defringing, lens vignette removal, and also to control post-crop vignetting. Overall, it's a pretty nice program. The Designer program is likely to be the second most popular of the three applications. That's because it's a good choice for creating logos, ads, and graphics for use in presentations. Some of the improvements are pretty complex, and others are features that only a graphic designer will care about or even understand. Here's one example, an updated Pantone library. Pantone is the definitive reference for colors used in nearly all applications worldwide. The company was acquired by X-Rite in 2007, and X-Rite was purchased by the Danaher Corporation in 2012. The Pantone matching system makes it possible for manufacturers of products from dresses to automobiles to match colors without long and involved consultations. So Affinity Designer users have access to the latest PMS color swatches. At least a dozen PMS swatch collections exist, from four-color CMYK printing on coated or uncoated stock to metallics, pastels, and neons. Once the user has selected the color, the color can then be modified. The default seems to be tint, but there are also sliders that represent the color as RGB percentages, RGB values, hue saturation and lightness, lab colors, and more. A stock photography panel that was previously present in the photo and publisher applications is now included in the designer application. It links to three sources for free stock photos. Unsplash, Pexels, and Pixabay. To use it, just enter a search term. The example you'll see on the TechBiter Worldwide website, I of course use the word cat. Then select one of the resulting images and drag it onto the design. The first time you use any of the services, you will need to acknowledge that the images are being provided by a third party and not by affinity. The new version has improved the expand stroke function, That's a pretty esoteric function, but basically it's intended to be used once a design is finished. At that time, the user can finalize or expand a shape to lock its structure. Once that's been done, the user has what's effectively a flattened vector that can be transformed. Okay, like I said, it's pretty esoteric. Other new features are even more esoteric. Boolean operations on shapes and elements, for example. In a vector program such as Affinity Designer, text is simply a bunch of geometric objects. The Boolean operations make it possible to combine the various letter forms, these little graphic objects, in ways that are easy to imagine, but kind of difficult to describe and very difficult to accomplish if you don't have this function. And before we wander any deeper into the weeds, let's just move on to Affinity Publisher. Publisher is the most specialized application, therefore probably the one with the smallest user base. If you're designing something that will be printed commercially, this is the application to use. It may not be Adobe InDesign, but it is a capable application for a lot of jobs. When you're dealing with a commercial printer, it's important to deliver files without errors. A good editor will catch spelling, grammar, and logical errors in a presentation, but might not notice missing typefaces, bleed problems, missing linked objects, images that have been stretched or squished, text that overflows a frame, low-resolution images, lines that are too thin to print properly, and there's a lot more. So many things can go wrong with printed output. These are the kinds of problems that can be very easily overlooked. And Affinity Publishers' pre-flight check has been updated to identify and warn about 20 common problems. Problems that are difficult and expensive, or possibly even impossible, to fix once a job is on the press. When the job has a text overflow problem, a small eyeball icon appears next to the area where the problem is. Clicking that icon reveals at least some of the text that doesn't fit in the frame, so you'll have an idea how big the problem is. Master pages have been made smarter in this release. A master page contains design elements that are intended to appear on every page that uses that master page. Problems would arise if the user wanted to apply a new master page in an existing document. Any elements that have been added to the page that's being changed would be dropped. That can still happen if you want it to but most designers will be happy to find that Affinity Publisher's new smart master pages can retain and reposition or resize any elements that were on the page when you specify a new master. Affinity Publisher can import InDesign documents too, sort of. That doesn't mean that users can work collaboratively with InDesign users. It is a one-way street publisher can import an InDesign file that has been exported in InDesign markup language, IDML. But that's still a pretty big improvement. Previously, Affinity Publisher could accept only a PDF created by InDesign, and that was certainly far from ideal. So the bottom line here is five cats. It is a sweet deal, but not a sweet deal. Two different spellings of sweet there. Check the TechBiter Worldwide website if you're still confused. If you need just the photo application, you'll spend 50 bucks. Add the designer application, you're up to $100. Include the publisher application, it's 150 total. What you're buying here is one to three capable applications at bargain basement prices. Unlike many other applications, though, Affinity programs are licensed on a per-computer basis. Most of the competing applications allow installation on two or possibly three computers, but even if you install all three applications on two computers, it would still be half the annual cost of Adobe's Creative Cloud. But then Creative Cloud includes website audio and video applications, not available from Affinity, and Adobe's photography plan, $120 a year, is still a more comprehensive choice. But the Affinity applications are still well worth consideration because the value proposition is simply too hard to ignore. Again, five cats. Additional details are on the Affinity website. You'll find a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. If you find these podcasts useful—and I hope you do—might you consider a donation? There are no ads here, and support from listeners is the sole source of income. It's easy. Just visit the website and click the Donate button near the top of any page. You can make a one-time donation or schedule a repeating donation every month. I thank you. And so does the cat. short circuits, scammers are inventive. They pay attention to the news and COVID-19 has been quite profitable for them. So profitable that Medicare and the Centers for Disease Control have launched a campaign to let people know how contact tracing works and, just as important, how to spot a fake. Most contact tracing scams seem to have used phone calls so far, but it's virtually guaranteed that email scammers will follow. Now, it's easy to identify a scammer. A legitimate contact tracer will never request or demand a payment. A legitimate contact tracer will never request your Social Security number, Medicare account number, or any Medicaid identification. A legitimate contact tracer will never request bank, credit card, or other financial information. A legitimate contact tracer will never ask about your salary. A legitimate contact tracer will never ask for credit card numbers. So anyone who asks for any of that information should be assumed to be a crook. Ignore the email or terminate the phone call. There is no point in dealing with a scammer. On the other hand, if you've been identified as a person who has been in close contact with someone who has tested positive for COVID-19, a contact tracer or public health worker from your state or local health department may contact you. This is done to help slow the spread of the disease. Medicare says that all of the information you share with a contact tracer, like who you've been in contact with and your recent whereabouts, is confidential. Although a contact tracer will never request payment, identification numbers, or credit information, the tracer may ask you to self-quarantine for 14 days. The CDC says this means staying home, monitoring your health, and maintaining social distance from others at all times. The contact tracer will also ask you to monitor your health to watch for symptoms of COVID-19, to notify your doctor if you develop any symptoms of COVID-19, and to seek medical care if any symptoms worsen or become severe. If you'd like to see more information from the Centers for Disease Control, see the department's COVID-19 website page. There is a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website this week, www.techbiter.com. Have you ever opened your web browser only to find that it's not your preferred web browser? Some program developers build into their application installers a process that changes your default browser or your default search engine. Even Microsoft does this if you're distracted during an operating system update. Microsoft's new Chromium-based Edge is a fine browser. No problem with it. Bing is a fine search engine. But Edge and Bing are not my preferred browser and search engine. If you found that your computer's default browser isn't the one you want, or the browser's search engine has been changed to something you don't want, it's easy to reverse those changes. So, let's see what we can do to fix this, starting with the default browser. Now, I'm going to assume that your computer is running Windows 10. So, go to Settings, Default Apps. There, you'll see options for email, maps, music players, and other major categories, click the web browser button and select the browser you prefer from the list of installed browsers. Browsers other than the one you selected may still bug you occasionally if you open them. They'll still want you to set them as your default browser, and they do a lot of begging. These messages usually include a do not show again option. If you're tired of seeing that reminder, just click the do not show again option. Search engines are a bit more complex because they are set for each browser, not at the operating system level. That's good because you can specify any search engine you want as the default for each browser. DuckDuckGo is the default search engine for Firefox, Google is the default for Chrome, Bing is the default for Edge. The process of changing the default search engine is similar for most browsers, And there really are only two primary systems these days, Firefox and everybody else. Although Microsoft's new Edge browser is based on Chrome, it is the most difficult browser to modify. And that probably does not surprise you, does it? Overall, there are more similarities than differences, though, so let's go through the three quickly. Firefox is easy. Just click the three horizontal lines at the top right of the screen. It's what they call the hamburger menu. Then select Options from the drop-down menu, select the Search tab at the left side of the screen, then select your preferred search engine from the list. Quick and easy. Chrome, also quick and easy, but instead of horizontal lines, Google uses three vertical dots. Click that icon. You'll find it in the upper right-hand corner. Select Settings from the drop-down menu, then choose the Search Engine tab on the left side of the screen, and select your preferred search engine from the list. And last, Edge, which is Chromium-based, and you'd think it would be a lot like Chrome. And it is, sort of. But of course, it's been handled by Microsoft, so it's completely different. Microsoft probably has a reason for making so many changes to the processes used by Chrome, even though they both use the same code. So for Edge, in the upper right corner, you'll find instead of Chrome's vertical dots, or Firefox's horizontal lines, you'll find horizontal dots click the icon to display the drop-down menu, then select Settings, choose the Privacy and Services tab on the left, scroll all the way to the bottom of the page, and it's a long page, click Address Bar and Search. You'd almost think that Microsoft is trying to make it hard for users to figure out how to use a different search engine, wouldn't you? On the next screen, scroll again all the way to the bottom. At least this one is a shorter screen. And there you can select your preferred search engine for the list. So, three browsers, three search engines, done and done. You won't have to change any defaults to read spare parts. Just head over to the TechBiter Worldwide website, and this week you'll find these articles. Adobe's free Photoshop camera app for Android and iOS devices keeps getting better with the addition of free lenses that modify images taken with the app. Acronis True Image 2021 doubles down on security measures with tools that scan for viruses, watch for malware, and use artificial intelligence to identify attacks before they can do damage. And 20 years ago, a 19-inch monitor seemed gigantic. But flat panel monitors back then were prohibitively expensive, and those big cathode ray tube screens left little space on the desk. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Be sure to check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like... Send me an email from there. See you next week.